All right, thank you, Josh. Thanks for reading that and giving me a transition moment here to get my things ready. Well, this morning we begin chapter two of Galatians. Um, and just as I think it's appropriate for us to pause just for a minute and reflect upon chapter one uh, before we dive into this new chapter. Now, certainly there are no chapter markers in the, in the Greek. Uh, there are no verses that are there either. Um, this is just one big letter. But, but think about this letter as it went out to the Galatian people. Actually, it's a, it's a group of churches, not just one church, but it's several churches. And this message, this letter went out from Paul, somebody who they knew very well, somebody who founded the church. And can you imagine the Sunday morning when this letter is read? Because Paul does not mince words. He goes straight and attacks the problem. And I wonder if there were some gasps on that Sunday morning. <gasps> what? What? What's happening? And I wonder if there were some people who started to get a little heated in their, in their neck. They started to get a little bit upset because although Paul's not naming anyone, he is calling some people out. And I wonder if some heads started turning in the congregation, looking around going, I think I might know who he's talking about. This was a very uncomfortable Sunday morning. Now, it's, who are these people who Paul is calling out? And we, we've, we've labeled them as Judaizers, and we've said that word as we started preaching through this, but uh, Paul never has mentioned them as called them Judaizers. Who are they? They are Christian believers who happen to be Jews. And they're having a hard time with this idea that the Gentiles are being welcomed into the family of God, that they're becoming the people of God, something that the Jewish nation claimed for centuries and centuries. And so as Paul reads these, as they hear Paul's in the reading of his letter say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That hits home. As he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Not accursed of Paul, but accursed of God. Heavy words. And then he says it again. As it's still weighing heavy in the air, he says, and it, as we have said before now, I say it again, if anyone is preaching a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And so <clears throat> the rest of chapter one then, after he makes that bold statement and confronts the Galatians, is Paul defending his gospel that he preached to them and then also defending his apostleship because they went directly if they're going to attack the message, boy, attack the messenger. And so they attack Paul. And Paul has to defend himself. And he spends all of chapter 1 doing that. He is still in defense mode as he describes what happens next. And that's what we see in chapter 2. Josh read that for us. And just as a, as a means of outline so that you know where I'm going this morning, I'm just going to unveil everything right now, okay, so you can see it. I'm going to stay really close to the text, okay? So my outline really reflects the text. 
The first point that we're going to look at is Paul is directed by the Spirit. We see that in verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2. The second point, Paul seeks unity in the Spirit. He does that at the remainder of verse 2. And then verses 3 through 5, we see the fruit of the Spirit produces unity in the gospel. Okay, So 3 through 5, the fruit of the Spirit produces unity in the in the gospel. So let's begin with that first point. Paul is directed by the Spirit, verses 1 and 2a. Let me read that for you. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation. Okay, so 14 years, that's a long time. What was Paul doing in 14 years? Why did he wait 14 years? You can do a lot of ministry in 14 years, but 14 years passes. And I would would submit to you that I believe that God is preparing Paul for 14 years to serve him. I believe it took a long time. And sometimes we're not not patient in our culture. We want things now, right? Uh, You know, somebody asks, you know, hey, I, I want to pursue eldership. How long is that going to take? Because if it's too long, you may not be interested, right? But I think, I think there's wisdom in taking time. You see, Paul took 14 years. Now, how do we calculate this 14 years here? So Paul makes trips to Jerusalem. He makes a trip to Jerusalem three years after Jesus appeared to him. That's what Josh preached on last week. And then he says, and then 14 years uh, later, later than what, uh, he makes a second trip to Jerusalem. Now, is that 17 years? That's the question. This is the boring part of the sermon. I'm sorry. Is it 17 years? I just heard John MacArthur this week say, yes, it's 17 years. That's how you add three plus 14. Okay. But I believe that that puts us in Acts, in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is when the Jerusalem council happens, when uh, in Jerusalem, they get a council of people together, a lot of apostles, a lot of important uh, people, and they hear from Paul, and they hear from his opponents, and they come up with a judgment, what seems good to them, and they say, look, we, we're, we're going to side with Paul. The justification happens by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that circumcision is not necessary. And what we're going to do is we're going to send this out to all of the churches everywhere, And so they do that, right? So if that had been the case, there would not have been a reason for Paul to write Galatians. Or if he did write a letter, he would have said, hey, I hear you guys are having some trouble. Please see the letter that was sent from Jerusalem. It explains everything. But he doesn't. What we see is then him building this case and defending uh, the gospel and his ministry. Um, So I believe that it's three years and then after his conversion, and three years after, or 14 years after his conversion as well. Um, and we find this second journey in Acts eleven twenty nine, And it says, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So there was a famine going on in Jerusalem and Judea. And these brothers in these churches who are spread out abroad, they decide, hey, let's gather some money. Let's, let's help them out. Let's do some relief work here. We're going to send some money to our brothers in Jerusalem. And 
verse 30 says, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So Paul is sent to bring money to the church in Jerusalem. That's why he is there, and we see that in Acts. So that would account for the first, the first trip where he sat with Peter for two weeks and then had lunch with, who was it, James? I believe it was James. Uh, and then this next one where he's delivering money. Okay? Why is Paul being so precise about his travel plans? Um, well, I think as Josh accurately said last week, Paul is con- constructing a legal case in a legal manner against the lies of those who oppose him and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's bringing truth to bear, and, he, and he's shining light to expose the darkness of the claims of these Jewish Christians, Okay. So real quick, who's Barnabas? Barnabas is Paul's traveling companion who was sent from Antioch on Paul's first missionary journey. He was an eyewitness. He was there when Paul was doing all of his missionary work. He's an excellent person for Paul to bring along with him as a way of someone to say, yeah, I was there. I saw it. It's just, just like he said it happened. Then he also brought Titus. Who is Titus? Titus was a Greek convert. He was living proof. He was, he was living fruit of, the, of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. Somewhere along the, the line, as Paul was going and preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, Titus heard and he received the grace of God and he was saved. All right? So he brings those two people with him. Beginning part of verse 2, he says, I went up because of a revelation. Paul states that this trip, even though he was called to send money and stuff like that, was actually prompted by a revelation, an apocalypsis, right? That's the Greek word. In the, the, the last book of our Bible is called apocalypsis or revelation, and it means unveiling. It means revealing something. And so, so Paul is saying, I, I received or was prompted by Jesus, not because someone asked me to go. It's not that the, 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 the apostles in Jerusalem said, hey, let's summon Paul. Or let's invite him to come up. No, God told Paul to go, all right? And circumstances coincided with that. Now, my question here, as I, as I reach this one little phrase, is, is this the normal way that God guides people today? Should we expect God to guide us by apocalypsis, by dreams or visions, even by an audible voice, or maybe a prompting? Is that the normal way that God guides us today? Last week, Josh also brought to us this verse in Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke through our fathers by the prophets. Yes, he used apocalypsis. In the past, he did. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through, him he, through whom he also created the world. So he's saying now God is, is speaking through Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, even Paul, who's part of this apostolic age, and he, as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, as an apostle of God, receives apocalypsis. Even he, though, during this time, writes to Timothy. And what does he say to Timothy? Does he say, apocalypsis is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness? No, he doesn't say that. He says, 
all Scripture, sola scriptura, is God-breathed. Pros ton theon. It's from God. It is breathed, literally breathed out of heaven. These are the words of God, and they're profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be fully equipped or perfect, perfectly equipped for ministry. Okay, so we believe that, that, that from this, that God displays his, his wisdom and his guidance in the Son through the Word and the Spirit. As Jesus was here on, on the earth, he prayed for us, John 17, 17, and he says, sanctify them by the truth, your Word is truth. He points to the Word. And then in John 14, he also prays for us. And he says, Father, send them a helper. And he's going to be the spirit of truth. And he's going to teach them everything. He's going to remind them everything that I said. See how word and spirit work together here. Now, what what about experience or providence or circumstance, right? You know, some people talk about, man, there was an open door. I just walked on through it. God can certainly speak to us in a multitude of different ways because He is God. However, we should expect to receive guidance through the normal and regular means of Christ revealed in the Scriptures. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 119, 105. Dreams and visions are a lamp unto my feet. Circumstance is a light unto my path. He doesn't say that, does he? doing some like mind tricks on you this morning, right? He says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then he spends pages upon pages in Psalm 119 just declaring how amazing God's word is, his law, his precepts, his commands, right? Now, as I reach this and I think about this, and I think about this is what I believe about how we receive guidance from the Lord, I begin to reflect on my life and think, well, is that always how I sought God's guidance? And I was kind of, I'm embarrassed a little bit to say, it's not. There was a time in my life, and I, I reflected back, being in college and even shortly after college, where I would, I would pray about, I would have a decision, right? Maybe you've done this. And we pray about, Lord, which way do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Now I would go, okay, now I'm going to wait for an undetermined amount of time till I receive a peace about it, right? And that peace, that feeling, that's God's green light for me to go ahead and do what I wanted to do. I'm like, where is that in the Bible? Does anyone know if that's in the Bible? It's not in the Bible, Where did I learn that? Where did I learn that? I learned that from other Christians as I observed the way that they sought guidance, the way that they talked about finding guidance from the Lord. And I go, man, that's just crazy. And why is that crazy? 
It's crazy because the Bible says, and Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Can you trust yourself? Can you trust your feelings? This is, he, Jesus speaks this in the context of serving two masters, serving God or serving money, right? And somehow in our, in our deceitful heart, we think we can do both, right? I can, see, I can serve God and I can get lots of money, right? I can, I can serve God, I can worship God, and I can worship money and materialism. And our deceitful hearts then pollute our eyes and cause the very light that we perceive to be darkness, and we need, you, we, as Christians, we need the Word of God as the true light illuminating our steps, guiding our paths, even illuminating our hearts and showing us where we're wrong. We get it wrong. Think about uh, Jonah, right? Jonah's called to go to Nineveh, right, and preach to them the message that God's going to give them. And so where does he go? He goes to, to the port town of Joppa, right, and He's looking for a boat to go to Nineveh. Well, there are no boats that go to Nineveh. But hey, here's one that's going to Tarsus. God has opened a door for me. Just because it's convenient, just because it's there, it's contradicting God, what God told him to do. It's contradicting his very word. He shouldn't do that. We see in uh, Acts 16, I don't want to take too long in this, but... It's a, you should go and read it. Paul is in his band of merry missionaries or heading out on their second, second missionary journey. And uh, they keep trying to enter different towns in different areas. You know, they're going to Bithynia. I can't remember the towns, but I think it was Bithynia. They tried to go there. They were prevented. Maybe there was a roadblock, maybe a you know, landslide wiped out the path to, to Bithynia. Or they tried to go to Pisidia. That didn't happen either. They couldn't get there. And so in the night, Paul has this dream of a man from Macedonia. And this man is saying, come, tell us the gospel. So what does Paul do? Does Paul wake up in the morning and tell his merry band, I've got the answer, I've received guidance, let's go. No. You know what he does? He sits down with him and he explains the dream to his, to his other people in ministry and says, what do you guys think? Should we go? And what did they do? They didn't rely simply on that apocalypsis. And I would submit to you that I think that they, they sat down and they thought about it and they thought about the scriptures and they thought about the character of God and they said, is this consistent with, with our God? And I believe that that's what we should do. I mean, even if you got a dream or a vision, still, is it, does it work with this? Or is it telling you the opposite? This is what we are given. This is the normal means. Sola Scriptura. <clears throat> Which, you know, I, and I don't want you to feel bad, but I feel bad when I read that verse in, in 2 Timothy that says, all Scripture, because I've got a handful in my pocket of ones that I've memorized. But I think, I wonder, I go, is that enough for every situation? All Scripture, even those books that are hard to get through, even the ones that are chock full of names and I, or the same kind of sacrifice over and over and over again. Why would I read that? 
because it is profitable for you. It's guidance. And what it leads you to is obedience. Okay? That's what it's for. Let's move on. Point two. I spent way too much time in point one, as, as Josh does, but so that's just common around here. Okay, pa- point two. Paul seeks the unity of the Spirit. Okay, the rest of verse two. And he set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Okay, two things here. Paul sets before these people, okay, the gospel that he's proclaiming to the Gentiles. Who are these people? He says it in the parenthetical phrase, those who seemed influential, okay? Does he not know the names of the apostles? I think he does, right? So I think he's not just talking about apostles, but I think he's talking about a broader group of people that he's bringing this message to. That he, these people who seem to be, to be on mission, these people who seem to be leading the church, I'm going to go to them and I'm going to tell them what the gospel that I'm proclaiming Okay, the second thing, he says, in order that I will make sure that I will not running in the present, nor had not run in the past in vain. Okay, now, interesting, he uses this present and then past this way, and he does it in that order, right? He could have switched them. He could have said, to make sure that I, was not, I had, not run in, had not run or was not currently running in vain. He could have done it that way. Here's the reason why I think he did it in that order. Paul is not worried that the gospel that he's preaching is false. That's not what he's talking about, it, about it being in vain. Nor is he, is he thinking that he's not called to preach to the Gentiles. That's not, that's not in question here. What he is doing is he's being careful to share the gospel in the present with these influential church leaders so that he doesn't create unnecessary conflict that will prevent his ministry or undo the work that he's done in the past. Okay? Paul is aware of the difficulty that these Jews are having, including the Gentile converts, and not making them Jewish converts first. So he's careful. So Paul is obedient to Christ in going. Yes, he, he, as he said before, he's not an apostle, not of man or by man, but he is humble enough to realize that he needs brothers in the faith. Paul is not a lone ranger. It's Covenant Baptist Church is not a lone ranger in the ministry. We need our brothers and sisters in the faith. And Paul here is willing to submit himself to them and listen to their wisdom. This is the same Paul who wrote in Ephesians, verses 4, 1 through 3, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the call. And how are we worthy, worthily walking? He says, because we've been called to it with all humility. That's the sign of walking worthy, being humble and in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And man, that phrase right there just grabs me because we have to bear with one another in love. There are people who will bug you. The things they say, the things they do, they will drive you crazy. And Paul is saying you must bear with them in love being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the motivation that Paul has. This is what drives him. And I think that it's very important uh, because in a little bit, a couple weeks, we're going to see Paul go on blast, publicly outing Peter. 
And, a lot, and he gets a bad rap from that. A lot of people tell me, I don't like Paul, man. He's just, he's just a loose cannon. He's a bull in a china shop. He just, the dude has no self-control. I don't like him. But here we see Paul being very measured. We see him not being reactionary. We see him coming in humility. Let's look at the last point. The fruit of the Spirit produces the unity in the gospel. It produces unity in the gospel. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced or compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Two things I want you to see here in this verse. The first word, but. Okay? This begins one of five adverse conjunctions. It's, it, there's one translation. I can't remember which one it is. But each after this, including verse 3, then verse 4, then the verse 5, then verse 6, they're all but, 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 but. Now, in my ESV, it, it uses different adverse uh, conjunctions, but still it's the same. But, yet, on the contrary, and what you're supposed to feel here in the way that he's writing is the conflict, is the opposition right here, okay? <clears throat> but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced or compelled to be circumcised. Circumcised is the second thing that I want you to see here. This is the first time in the book of Galatians, not the last, but this is the first time that he actually brings up the issue, right? How are they turning to a different gospel? What are they adding to the gospel? Here it is right here, Okay? So this is the different gospel that the Galatians were exchanging for the gospel he preached to them. He says, you're adding circumcision to the atoning work of Jesus Christ through, the, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection because somehow that atoning work was, and that precious blood was not enough. It was not enough. You needed to add something that you did, a work that you did to that to complete it. It sounds pretty crazy when you put it that way. And Paul's explanation of the gospel and bringing Titus along as, as proof, as fruit of the gospel, was very persuasive to these leaders. And we read that Titus was not required or forced to be circumcised. Here's the truth of the gospel right here that Paul was trying to preserve. The gospel is by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. Circumcision or anything else is not necessary to be saved. We have a lot of disagreements denominationally with a lot of different churches about a lot of different things, but this one thing is vital to the church, and we must be united in this. The gospel is by grace alone. It's, it is through faith alone, and it is by Christ alone. It's like the, fa it's, the gospel is like this fabric that binds us together. If I were to break my arm or something, they would wrap it, right? They would wrap that, my arm in, in a bandage. They would even put some cement in there or something. I'm not a doctor, but they would make it like stiff and rigid, you know, to hold the bones together. So they would be bound together. But even that rigid cast, if you've ever had a cast on your arm, you start to pick at it, right? You start to, so at the edge and you start just un unraveling it a little bit. Paul is saying, there are some people who are starting to unravel this. Some people who are taking their cast on the edge of their table and they're just rubbing it like this right here and they're destroying the table and their cast. That actually happened at my house. Not by me, one of my children. Verse four, again, but, but because or through 
by or the, on the account of false brothers. Okay, this word in the Greek is pseudo-adelphoi. Okay, and you don't have to be a, a Greek scholar to know what that means, right? Because we have Philadelphia, right? It's a city of brotherly love, right? So the brother is in there in the Greek, adelphoi, Adelphia, right? And pseudo means not real, right? So these are not real brothers. Now, I, I, I can't remember who said this, but this is not from me. This is a quote from somebody else. Um, oh, who, who was it who I heard say this? I, it was Doug, Doug Wilson. So Doug said, he said, they are, they are brothers, but in the sense that a, an unfaithful husband is a husband, right? He's unfaithful to the covenant. He is breaking the thing that binds them together, but he's still a, he's still a husband. And these brothers are the same way. They are brothers, and yet they're being unfaithful to the thing that is binding them together, which is the gospel. It says here that these False brothers, which is, man, that's harsh, secretly brought in, who slipped in, which means they snuck in with malicious intent to spy out our freedom. What is this freedom they're trying to spy out? This is Paul explaining the gospel that he's bringing to the Gentiles, this freedom that they have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery or bring us into bondage. And I believe that Titus was their first target. Now, notice here, Paul's opponents, they're coming to bring disunity. And disunity tends, as we see here, to dwell in darkness. That's where it lurks. And its goal is to do as much damage as possible before we can even perceive it. It is fueled by timid hearts, unwilling to call the it out of the darkness, to bring it into the light. It's like when someone talks about a brother or a sister in hushed tones, concerned, maybe even sharing a prayer request, and they're not there. Maybe they're sharing a hurt somebody has done to them. That's called gossip. That destroys unity. And that needs to be brought into the light. We need to shut that down when we hear it. And we need to say something, hey, if you have a problem with that person, you really should go and talk to them, not me. In fact, I don't really even want to hear it. Maybe we should go together so I can make sure that we expose this. Disunity is also fertilized in our hearts when we are offended and we don't have the courage to call it out. And we allow seeds of bitterness to be sown in our hearts and our fleshly wounded minds do the work of growing that hurt into a false, weedy thought about that person that is difficult to uproot. We'll label them. We may even walk away from that relationship out of maybe a misunderstanding, maybe a, a wrong perception. We didn't have the courage to bring it up. We need to bring that into the light. We need to show our brother the pain, the offense. We're commanded to do that in Scripture, Matthew 18. And we need to be reconciled. And then you know what you need to do next? You need to forget it altogether, and you need to banish that thought to hell. 
those are just a couple of his examples of how disunity infiltrates the family of God. It breaks the trust that we have with one another. It in, injects suspicion into our body, and it slowly brings division. It just eats away at us like gangrene. And we would be wise to take the light into the dark corners of, of our church. We would be wise to take the light into the dark corners of our relationships. And here's the reason why. Here's the reason why. Not only is the unity of this place vital, but there are real threats. There are sinister threats to our gospel unity. And that's a bigger battle. But that's how the enemy starts. He starts within us, and then he starts to unravel the thing that binds us together. If the gospel is that fabric, again, like I said, there are some, and they may, that might be you, that may be me, who are unknowingly unraveling the gospel at the edges. And since Jesus came out of the grave, there have existed malicious, demonic threats using subterfuge and deception in an attempt to dilute the gospel. If they can add or subtract to the clear teachings of Scripture, then they will have succeeded in their mission. They say, you need the gospel plus dot, dot, dot. And Paul writes to the Galatians that, it, that they're adding circumcision to the gospel. And these agents of evil intent, they lack transparency, they lurk in the darkness. They have false motives and they promote a man-centered agenda, a man-centered opinion. And what motivates that? Fear, jealousy, pride. Listen to what Jesus says to Peter. And we, we know this, right? You know this verse, right? Jesus looks at Peter in this flaming moment and, and, and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Remember that? Do you remember what he says next? Because that's the one that just cuts me to the heart. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I do that. We all do that. Our hearts default to thoughts and things of man. But we need to set our hearts and our minds on the things of God. And these threats are alive and well today. On an institutional level, I can remember back in 2020, uh, just what we went through when, when the, you know, I heard things like, you can't be a true Christian, okay? Can't be a true Christian if you're not willing to do this, because that's not showing love to your neighbor, right? Whether that's a mask or a vaccine or being socially distanced or whatever, and suddenly, my faith is called into question. My salvation is called into question because I didn't do this? I don't think that's how it works. Or when, when the government in Washington said, you can't sing on Sunday morning to God. You can't praise the God who commands you to worship Him. And people are like, man, if you do that, you guys sing corporately, just not Christians. We can add good things to it too. I've heard some people go, I don't think you can be a Christian if you don't homeschool. And I, I, I would homeschool my kids today. But I can't add that to the gospel. Or even some churches who say, if you're not immediately baptized after you're saved, well, it doesn't count. 
I would go, I believe in baptism. Baptism is a good thing. Do not hear me say, don't get baptized. You should get baptized as a result of your salvation, as a witness of saying, God's changed me. But if you don't, within 30 minutes, you're still saved. Or another denomination that would say that you have to speak in tongues or that you have to receive the baptism of the Spirit or it doesn't take. And I would say that is breaking the, the truth of the gospel. We add those things and we create a different gospel, a gospel that will not save us, a gospel that will send us to hell, so therefore a gospel that is straight out of hell. Here's the crazy thing, and this is where it hits all of us. If, you, if someone is deceived, by definition, they don't know they are deceived. If they knew they were deceived, they wouldn't be deceived. Do you understand that? You can be sitting here right now in this place, totally oblivious, that you've been deceived, that you've been lied to, and that you're not holding on to the truth of the gospel. That is a real possibility, and we need to have discernment. We need to look into our hearts. The last verse, to them, the pseudo-Adelphoi, we, Paul, I think the we is Paul and Barnabas and Titus, as he says, no, I'm not going to get circumcised. I even believe the church in Jerusalem stands with them. They did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved, so that it might continue to exist for you. For who? For the Galatians, right? He's writing this to the Galatians. He says, I, we stood. We didn't yield for a moment. Paul is fighting for the truth of the gospel, which welcomes Gentiles into the church and, the, and grants them freedom from following Jewish tradition. The thing that included them in the Mosaic covenant but Paul is proclaiming right here, all followers of Christ are under the new covenant, sealed with the blood of Jesus, because Jesus and Jesus alone could fulfill the Mosaic covenant. And he did it for us. They're going to even accuse Paul later in Acts 21, 21 of teaching the Jews to abandon the law of Moses. It's like, if you want to live under the law of Moses, go ahead. Moses came down off the mountain with two tablets. 3,000 people died. The law brought death. You know what happened at Pentecost? 3,000 people found life. Right? Through the new covenant. So what are you going to choose? You're going to choose death? You're going to choose life? All right. Jesus fulfills the law perfectly, and he dies to impute righteousness to us. This is the only way that we have righteousness, is because God imputes it to us. There's no righteousness. You have no righteousness, but the righteousness that God would give you in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? That means that you are the blessed man of Psalm 4.8, where the psalmist says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. 
That's the only way you can be that blessed man. So Paul does two things. He goes to war when the truth of the gospel is potentially damaged, okay? And Paul chooses the one, he chooses the one fight that every Christian must fight. We must fight for the truth of the gospel. There are so many controversies, there are so many wars, there are so many fights in this world today that just are really not worth fighting. Watch the news. Not worth fighting. Why are we fighting? We also, like Paul, must be on guard about those things that will do damage to the unity of the gospel and the unity of God's people. The other thing I want to point out here is that, that, that yield and submission. Man, it is easy to yield in submission. It is easy to be passive. It is easy to just not get involved. And we yield often because we are seeking the approval of men. But that's, the, that's kind of the... I've kind of touched on the institutional fights. Let me... Let me have you think about this, okay? Okay, go with me here. The gospel is always going out. It goes out here on Sunday morning as it's preached, but then it goes out that door or that door or that door, and it goes into your home. It goes to your neighborhood. It goes to your work. It goes to Sam's Club. It goes to the post office. It goes to the DMV where it really needs to be. It goes everywhere where you go. What have you added to the gospel? And I would, I would say that not no one in here would go, I don't add anything to the gospel. No, I don't do that. What are you talking about, Mark? <laughs> but it's not in what we say or what we might affirm. What do we add to the gospel? And here's the thought. What functionally have we added to the gospel? And how does that come out in how we live and how we think about our relationship with God? Okay? Because just like the way that I learned how to seek guidance the wrong way by seeing someone else talk about it that way, and it's not in the Bible... I believe that someone might look at your life, might look at my life and go, oh, that's what the gospel is. Why? They didn't even tell me about it, but I see them living it out. And here's how, we, here's how we're going to know that, okay? Surely as, <clears throat> one, surely as evangelical Western Christians, we add to the gospel, okay? From our culture, you know, whether that's political things or... <clears throat> Things about, uh, I don't know, how you raise your kids or um, uh, how you live. But here's, here's the one I want to challenge you on, okay? Do you add righteous works to the gospel? By your silence, I'm, I'm guessing everybody's saying, no, I don't do that. <laughs> well, let me, let me ask you this question. How do you feel when you fail? How do you feel when you're caught in a sin? Yes, you should feel godly sorrow. 
Yes, you should feel the separation because you've walked away from God. And yes, you should feel his discipline in your life. But if the thought springs into your head, maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe God really didn't save me. Then you've added work righteousness to his atoning work. Somehow something that you did or that you didn't do now means that you are not saved, that he couldn't save you. But the flip, the flip side or the opposite is true as well. Do we look down or pity those who fail? We see their failure and we go, man, that's greater than my failure. Whew, feeling good about myself. Somehow adding to my salvation my own righteousness as if I get a gold star. If you've added or subtracted, what, what we've done is we're the prodigal son coming back to the father saying, I, I'm not worthy to be called your, your son. Make me your servant. The father going, what are you talking about? You're my son. What can you ever do to erase that? Or we're like the older brother saying, I'm not going. Do you, you know what he did? Were you asleep? He just spent all your money. And I've done nothing wrong. So I am not participating in your celebration. Both the prodigal and the older brother are separated from the father at some point. Here's the, here's the beauty of the gospel. God has given us a remedy for our failure. God has given us a remedy for our separation. God has given us a remedy for our sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And God has given us a remedy for our self-righteousness. And that remedy is repent and believe. In the same way that you were saved, it's how you continue in the faith. Repent and believe the simple gospel that Jesus paid it all. That God is the one who is changing your life. He's responsible for it. Later in Galatians, we're going to see how he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And who adds the fruit of the Spirit to, the, to our life? Do you do it? Do I do it? No, he does it. He does it. And, and it's so beautiful because that way he alone gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. He is the one who saves you, not you. He is the one who perfects you, not you. It is Jesus. It is God alone to the glory of God. We call that sola gloria. God alone gets the glory for it all. So the simple gospel is this. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't participate in that sanctifying work. We should. If God has started a work in us and it is beginning, man, we should take great joy in participating with that. And repenting joyfully that we have forgiveness again and again. And the patience of God, oh my goodness, why wouldn't you do that unless you weren't really saved? Paul encourages us to examine to see if we're in the faith. To test yourself. But after you've done all of that, don't believe the lie that you're forsaken. The simple gospel is... <clears throat> That faith, that salvation is found by grace alone. Not because we did anything or we were good enough. It was by, totally by his grace. I'm saved 100% because he, he chose to love me. 
He were saved by faith alone because I put my faith and my trust in him. And he, even that is something that he gave me as a gift. We're saved in Christ alone. Not one other thing was necessary than the precious blood of our Savior that we will celebrate in communion to the glory of God alone, that he gets the credit alone. And we know this by the scriptures alone. And this is what Paul is defending. If you're hearing me this morning and you've never received Christ, if you've never put your faith in Christ alone, if you've never received his grace and realized that he loves you, that he has died to save you, I encourage you, think about it. Think about it. And I would beg you, give your heart to him. Pursue him. Cry out to him. Say, God, save me. Change me. Do something in me that I cannot do on my own. And if you do that, man, I encourage you to come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to Josh. Just pray in your heart as we sing songs at the end of this, at the end of this service. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it powerfully speaks to us and that you have given us the truth of the gospel, Lord, that we can see it. But, Lord, we can get it so wrong in so many different ways. Lord, we pray that you would help us to lean and rest upon the word that you've given us. Make our minds sharp, Lord. Let us be workmen who, do, who will not be ashamed, Lord, who rightly handle the word of truth. We need your truth. You're, you're, you alone have the words of life, Jesus. And we want to receive those words from you. And we pray that you would dispel the darkness within us. Dispel the darkness within this place, Father, in our relationships. Lord, let there be nothing, short accounts here in this place. We dwell in unity together. And Lord, let us hold fast to the gospel. That we might proclaim it with our lives and with our lips in a way that people will hear it and receive it for your glory and your honor. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.